your positive, positive, positive imprint. Stories are everywhere. People and their positive action inspire positive achievements. Your PI could mean the world to you. Get ready for your positive imprint. Hello, this is Catherine, your host of Your Positive Imprint. What you do makes a difference, and you have to decide what kind of difference you want to make. Jane Goodall, British primatologist, anthropologist, and animal rights activist. Well, today I want to introduce my two featured guests, Anne M. Jensen and Vanessa Crandell Beck. Anne is the only Northern Alaska full-time archaeologist at this time. She's been a front-runner in her field for over 30 years. She says that being in the field for this long, she's experienced environmental changes. Ice preserves bones and artifacts, but when the ice melts, that's it. Those remains are part of the sea. And basically, she says, our history is melting. Vanessa has worked in oil fields and on ships. She wants to be a volcanologist. Today, she is an environmental scientist. Well, welcome to my two guests who are making their positive imprints. And thank you for supporting your positive imprint. What's your P.I.? Well, hello again from Kaktuvik. Well, guess what? I ran into some great ladies. Of course, you don't know the story yet, but my husband and I are stranded here in Kaktuvik. And so we ate dinner with Vanessa and Anne. And I just found out tonight that Anne speaks Danish. (laughs) So we were able to have a very short, I mean a very minute conversation, as my skills in Danish have not... uh, been that great. I haven't used it in years, but it was fun to chit-chat with with Anne. All right. (laughs) And then, of course, we have Vanessa. We're going to talk about their positive imprint. They have done so much in the world, and they have seen so much, and they have lots to talk about, and we will definitely not get through it all. Anne, so tell us about your imprint. Well, I suppose probably most of them revolve in some way or another around archaeology, particularly in Alaska. Uh, I've worked on the North Slope for, goodness, uh, 30-some years now, doing archaeology, first mostly around Wainwright, and then more recently around Gavik, which is what community formerly known as Barrow. Uh, Since 1997, I've worked for the uh, Barrow Village Corporation, UIC, uh, and now their their science subsidiary. So... uh, I've been fortunate enough that I've been able to get research grants to do research that also had met goals that that the community had. For example, um, for a number of years we were working on a a cemetery. Uh, The community of of Utkiavik basically was formed by the residents of two communities. There used to be a, actually at the beginning at least, a much bigger village out at the very tip of Point Barrow called Nuvok. And then there was Utkiavik proper, which is more or less where the town of Barrow now is. And so for our listeners, can you give them an idea of where Barrow might be (laughs) when they look at a map of Alaska? So if you look at a map of Alaska, say if you take your, imagine making your hand and sticking your thumb down and your pointer finger kind of out and to the left, that kind of is a map of Alaska. Well, Barrow is all the way at the top and Nuvuk is literally all the way at the top. It is the farthest north point in the continental, uh, not only the continental United States, but in the continent of North America. Oh, so goodness, so way up north. It's way up north. must be colder than it is here. 
Um, no, not necessarily. I think we have the, it's, there's water on both sides, so it, it I think ameliorates it a little bit, and there's a, a fairly good flow of water coming up through the Bering Strait, which I think has been pretty warm this year. So um, it's probably a little bit warmer there right now. It seems like we don't get quite as bad wind as as Kuktovik does either. I mean, they get. You seem to get another extra 10 miles an hour on storms, blizzards, and whatnot. I think maybe because the mountains are very close here compared to Barrow. They're hundreds of miles away. You can't even see them. So there. So it's got a lot of room to spread out. Yeah. Okay. And then I so joyfully interrupted you <laughs> so that the listeners can get an idea of where you're at. So we're back so, at the cemetery. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> so there used to be a village, and uh, it eventually got ab- abandoned because there were lots of attractive things. The school was built in Barrow. The church was in Barrow. The the minister, who was also the school teacher, was also a doctor. Uh, the best trading post, Charlie Browers, was in Barrow. So, you know, if you had school kids, whatever, you people started moving there. So the two communities basically became one and, and they all wound up shareholders in one corporation when when they did the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act. The point was a row has been eroding at least since the eighteen fifties, probably the eighteen hundred or earlier, just based on oral histories and, and British explorers accounts and whatnot. So the whole village had actually been seen a little bit by archaeologists but was eroding and people thought it was pretty recent, so they kind of ignored it. And then somebody reported human remains eroding out one day. So they called the cops. They called us as, as UIC. And they called, I think, the Inupiat History, Language, and Culture Commission, which is part of the North Slope Borough. And we all went out. And indeed, there were human remains. And they were indeed archaeological. So it was not a case for the cops. I mean, this person had died long before there was a state of Alaska. So and they didn't look particularly murdered anyway. So... So anyway, we wound up deciding to recover them because it was coming up on the 4th of July weekend. We were afraid they were going to get washed away or damaged. But uh, and that particular individual had some grave goods, which were very early. It was, you know, quite a shock. It was clear this was not somebody who was, you know, from right around the time of contact. It was somebody who was from about 1000 AD or actually they dated oh a little gosh. earlier. Wow. That, but we saw time because of what... You know, I hadn't really been researching it, and so I, I thought it was more, um, maybe it was just a guy that, you know, got was traveling and got and died and had to be buried, and, you know, he wound up there. And then the next year there was another person, and the next year there was another one, and uh, another one. At that point it was like, okay, this is not, um, this is an awful lot of dead people just you know, happen to kick the bucket right here and need to be buried. I, I don't <laughs> think that's what, all you know, this is the same like, time frame. Um, well, the others didn't have death? nearly as many grave goods. So, and we weren't radiocarbon dating them. I didn't have funding really. We were just doing the recoveries. You know, we had all kinds of other contracts. Anyway, so I, um, you know, I started looking for research money because the community, uh, and I first got something called a education through cultural and historical organizations grant that uh, ran through the North Slope Borough. And uh, so I was able to hire a lot of local students, and we did a lot of testing and found there was a whole bunch of graves. And we also had been keeping track of the erosion um, just for that brief period of time, and I started doing some research on the whole place. And it was clear that the erosion was happening much more quickly than anybody realized and going much faster. So we got this grant, and we started doing a very thorough systematic testing program and recovering all these individuals. And then, somewhere along in there, I can't remember whether we'd gotten the NSF funding or not, 
by that point, I went for some more NSF funding, so I was able to add uh, non-local students, uh, you know, some grad students and whatnot. And I also got together with um, Dennis O'Rourke, who's a bioarchaeologist who does ancient DNA in his lab, and uh, does it very ethically. Not, I wouldn't work with any just any lab. Um, anyway, he came up and talked to the community, and you know, and they actually were quite interested in seeing how these people were related to them and whatnot, and and they also were interested in having him pursue modern studies. So anyway, all that he got great big grant to do all that so that was nice but we were you know we, we, before we started excavating we spent a lot of time talking to the the elders and explaining what the situation was and a few of them were like oh we want to leave the people where they are and you know then someone else said but weren't you listening to her it's 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 eroding it's going away she can't leave them where they are they're going to fall in the water and she can't put any of the ones back they've already got because it's not there anymore so after <laughs> after after that that was kind of the end of of you know that they, they agreed that that really wasn't it. you know my my take on it really was that um it was very difficult to bury people you know they had a shoulder blade modified seal shoulder blade or wall or shoulder blade tied to a stick and they're trying to dig in gravel and it's so hard to dig that um, we did one reburial before we realized how bad the erosion was out there. We, we actually just reburied the people in what we thought was a safe place. Um, and, you know, something so fast that people pretty much had to keep digging during the ceremony. So, that, you know, so obviously this is not easy. So you wouldn't do this if it was just as good to be in the ocean because they lived right by the ocean. I mean, it was, you know, a matter of a hundred yards and they could put them on the ice or in the water and if that was just as good as being buried in land well that's not what they did so presumably their preference was for a grave and they had a certain style of grave and they you know more or less grave goods but you know they they clearly had a anyway so people thought they should be you know reburied um, the elders decided the grave goods should be kept so students could learn from them. They shouldn't just be reburied with the person. And what were some of the goods that you found um, that you recovered? Well, mostly, mostly. And the, the first the first fellow had a lot of hunting kit, uh, bola weight and uh, harpoon heads and uh, part of a composite knife and and uh, wound pins and float plugs and, you know, an assortment of things. A lot of the other people had maybe a harpoon head or, you know, a couple of things. He had by far the most material culture. It looks like it It sort of goes, there's always a few people who have more stuff in, in any group, but it also appears that it, as people move forward in time, they didn't put as many things in the grave with them. Somehow their thoughts on that changed. So, and I think a lot of the earlier graves probably were there, um, and just earlier archaeologists didn't really pay much attention to them. The other thing that appears to have happened, based on the one house tunnel we were able to excavate before, once we realized that, you know, they're actually the village was a little older and, you know, something should be done. Um, it looks like as the, the point eroded, probably people moved their houses. And, you know, the, the typical pattern is that the uh, village is close to the water, you know, reasonably close to the water. I mean, you don't want it down there wherever you storm is going to drown your house but but reasonably close to water so you're not having to make a two mile hike to go hunting every day or to even start out and then the graves are higher ground inland you know behind and so as the point eroded and the houses started eroding obviously they had to move the houses inland and so and the graves markers didn't stay in place and so eventually wound up 
putting a house in an unmarked grave, and that probably happened a number of times. So some of the earlier graves may not have been very intact anyway. But we were able to, about uh, close to parts of 100 individuals. We didn't always get a complete wow. individual. You know, there were cases where it looks like the grave had been damaged, had been run over, it had some, you know, because uh, there had been a lot of vehicular traffic. Uh, there was one couple of them where, you know, maybe some animal got got in, you know, and, and did what they would do. Um, and then there was one grave that just had a person's upper arm bone in it. It was a very nicely made grave, too. But it was that was kind of a mystery to everybody. We could have kind of understood if it had been, you know, a hand or a foot, you could have imagined it getting, you know, cut off, you know, got caught in a, a line on hunting or something. And, you know, they buried it. I don't know. But how do you just get this part of a person? <laughs> I mean, um, it didn't have any, you know, bite marks or anything. It wasn't like it was all that was left behind from a bear. So it was very, very odd. I mean, we were kind of expecting an infant burial given the size of it. And it wasn't until we, you know, finished excavating it that, lo and behold, it was a, it was a humorous. So that was that. So we were able to do that. We were able to work with some museums and, and, um, help with repatriation oh no that's you know that's a great imprint for society oh, and, it's not, and so what other experiences do you have that you really feel aside from your professional um, imprint you said you went to denmark and that seems like a wow it, well yeah so i i i've, I've gone there for two reasons my dad was danish and so i was a dual i had dual citizenship till i turned 22 because at that time you had to actually to keep your danish citizenship it was you had to actually apply i think if i'd been in the country for like two more months or something before my 22nd birthday i might have been able to keep it automatically but i've had to ask for it and at that time the u.s seemed to interpret trying trying to apply for citizenship elsewhere as renouncing your u.s citizenship which they don't now they're fine with people being dual nationals before it was if the other country thought that was great but as soon as you tried to be a dual you know you sought to be it somehow it, it was different so anyway, I was able to work there, and the minimum wage was much, much higher in the United States, and my aunt ran a restaurant, so she had jobs for people who didn't have a lot of skill or particularly much language capacity. And so uh, I went and did that and you know, managed to improve my Danish considerably. So, and then I later went back on a fellowship uh, after grad school. Or while well, I was in grad school, actually. So. And then came over here and... Yeah, and then wound up... Put your imprint in the ground, so to speak, right? <laughs> so to speak, yes. Yeah. We didn't try to backfill. <laughs> <laughs> and Vanessa? Well, I, I grew up in Northern California, and after I finished my undergrad, I moved to Texas to work in the oil field because I couldn't find work. So I ended up on a drilling rig, which wow. I was usually the only female on location. And how did that... Was that difficult? I grew up country, so I was okay with that, and I had older brothers. Uh, but sometimes it was interesting when, you know, you're the first thing you're told by somebody is, oh, well, you're the first female I've seen out here, and it was never in a good way. Oh, very derogatory. <laughs> very derogatory, or um, guys would ask me out, like, every day. 
or make some kind of remarks, whether it was to me or to one of my coworkers about me, but it would always end up coming back. And that was a, a challenge at first. And then... Well, you would have had to have stood very strong and stand your ground. Definitely. And yeah. that's great because you can obviously share those experiences with other females or males who have issues or who are worried about sexual harassment in the job place. Right. And I've, I've been on ships as well where sometimes there are very few females and diff- just different situations. And I have a, I have a geology and oceanography um, dual bachelor's degrees and then a geology and master's degree. I don't, what I, ideally, my, I've wanted to be a geologist since I was like four. I've wanted to be a volcanologist and study volcanoes since I was six, because I grew up an hour away from a volcano in California. I was thinking at some point to work with um, hazard mitigation uh, from volcanic eruptions. And so my master's thesis was at uh, Mount St. Helens. Jesus, that's pretty exciting. Is well, it published somewhere? It's not published, other than at a University of Texas of the Permian Basin. It's in their library, I think, or in my professor's office. Well, um, one of our listeners might want to go check it out. Wouldn't that be fantastic? Um, as with a lot of geology publications, it was inconclusive. Um, I was trying to see if there was any correlation with the grain size distribution um, from the source, which was Mount St. Helens, down to where the mud flow was deposited in a lake downstream about 30 miles. And a lahar, which is a mud flow and debris flow, um, which was just decimated much of the area around Mount St. Helens in the 1980 eruption. It's, it's a combination of all different grain sizes from you know, minute silt to large boulders the size of a house. So... My results showed just everything jumbled up, which makes sense, but there wasn't really a correlating factor um, as, as usually you would expect the larger grains to drop out of suspension by the time it gets down to wherever it's deposited. But it was moving so quickly and 30 miles is not that far for a flow like that. So, And that was a massive explosion. It was just a boom. Yeah. Not like with the... Volcano over in Hawaii where it's not... Just oozing. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, typically, um, well, the Mount St. Helens blast went primarily northwards, and I did my studies on the south side, which is far less studied, and there's less papers, and... Um, well, that's interesting. But it's also... I'm glad you chose something that hadn't <laughs> had the research with But it's it. also easy to access, because the north side is just hummocky and just completely destroyed from the blast, and the south side, there's some greenery and... And so when you did your research over there, were you able to stay there for several days, camp? I camped at a campground um, at the lake where that was the, the base of the deposition so that I, I was there alone. So I stayed at a campground so I could check in every day. So I would give them a map every day of like, this is where I'm hiking because I had permission from the U.S. Geological Survey mm-hmm. to go into more restricted areas to collect samples and hike through. So I'd leave a map at the campground every day and say, this is where I am. If I don't come back, go find me. And I, I've always traveled everywhere alone. And people are always like, oh, man, aren't you scared? Or why don't you go with somebody else? But then I would never go with anybody else. Because <laughs> a lot of the time people don't want to do exactly what I'm doing or I don't want to wait for them. Oh, or that's... something like that. So, <laughs> Bye! <yeah. laughs> 
I would I would rather go alone and do it my own way. Yeah. I am in awe right here sitting with these two ladies with what they are doing here. Gosh, what an imprint both of you are leaving. Uh, and I shouldn't say leaving because you continue to do it. And not just your work, but your the way that you are actually, you share. So you drove to Alaska. Did you do that by yourself? Yes, with, with my two cats. With your two cats. And what are your cats' names? Paikea and Bagheera. Oh, nice names. And you probably, do you still have the cats? Yes, they're in Anchorage right now. Oh, because you're up here. Yes. And for our listeners, we hear a lot of different sounds going on. And the reason is, is it's way too cold to do the interview outside. So we are inside of a nice, warm bed and breakfast. And uh, it's nice and warm, so we hear, you know, a lot of the sounds from inside. But it's a lot better than standing outside. Boy, oh, yeah. It's, and besides, it's, there's always wind noise. It's really difficult because a lot of people try to, you know, do video or talk to me on site and... And it is. They cast the size of it. Yeah, although the owls are out there. So are you, do you have any plans to use your research or to continue it in another location? Uh, Well, I'm I'm hoping to eventually get my PhD. And then, so I've, I've always tossed around teaching. At one point I was an instructional assistant within the classroom, like alongside teachers and middle schools. And that was really fun. I enjoyed that, and the students loved me. And uh, oh, I would love having you too. You so <laughs> are so interesting, and you're so nice and gentle and kind. But then again, I've also kind of tossed around potentially uh, working as an interpretive park ranger for the National Park Service. Um, I had an internship when I was in high school at a national park near my hometown, and that was a lot of fun. And I think I would have a blast hiking and teaching and interpreting along trails. In which national park did you? Uh, Lassen Volcanic National Park. Uh, Anna, I think we could have guessed that it was a volcanic. Yeah, Yeah, so that that was my first field trip when I was um, in second grade. And then I had an internship there in high school. And then I had different field trips there in college. So So your teachers and the folks that you were learning from actually imprinted you. And then now you are taking what you've learned and you're imprinting. Right. And I'm I'm hoping that I might take an adult gap year soon, take a year off and go hike. And where Um, would you like to go hike? I'll uh, go with you. (laughs) (laughs) I I would like to hike the Pacific Crest Trail from um, the Mexican border in California up to the Canadian border in Washington which is 2,660 miles. Wow. Well, I wish you the best of luck. Anna, you can so, go with this? <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. I want, I want my second knee in here. So, um, no, if I could dark. Anyway, I would do the Appalachian first. I've got, one of my brothers has done it. I still would like to, although I don't know if I'm going to be able to talk my husband into that. Yeah. So. Well, see, we could have had you on our little hike today. We just went up to the reservoir here to go listen to the loons. They put on a really good show today. Yeah. Instead, we got to listen to heavy equipment. (laughs) And the two of you have known each other just on this this project. Yeah. Just on this project. Well, I'm so thrilled that I met you, and I hope to keep in touch. And listeners love to hear the experiences and the imprint. Is there anything else either of you want to? Not that I can think of. 
I think my brain is slowing down a little. It's been a long day. We started here early. <laughs> and your ears are ringing from all of the machinery. Although, can you please call the bears in? <laughs> if I only knew how. <laughs> so. I could probably make a living just being here calling in bears for the tourist season. So do either of you want to talk about the ice at all? It's it's pretty amazing being up here for me. Like I grew up in Northern California, um, three and a half hours from the coast, and I'm I'm from the North Pacific as far as that goes. And this is like you know Arctic Ocean, and there's ice, and <laughs> it's it's pretty crazy. Like I I get goosebumps below eighty degrees, and here I am at seventy degrees north, and it's freezing cold outside and snowing. And yep. And you take a glove off, and you better not have it off for very long. Yes. <laughs> you get that stingy feeling, and yeah. your hand starts to really I don't hurt. know. For me, it's just it's incredible seeing ice and seeing figures and shapes in the ice. Like the other day, I saw an iceberg that was shaped like a dragon. There was one day in particular when there was just this parade of really cool-looking ones, and at least... I saw and Dennis was another person who's working on the same project as we are, and 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 there was this thing that looked like a swan, you know, and of course white. Did you see the swan too? It was, it was, as it turned, it kind of shifted. Oh like, yeah, yeah, they characters. all. But but for quite a long time, it was it was really very well, good I swan. I couldn't believe. Have you been out on a boat yet? To in not the, here, no. Wow. So we went out under the to see the ice and mm -hmm. I was just amazed at how gigantuous mm. some of this ice is I mean those polar bears they can hide they have, there's a lot of nice little caverns oh, yeah. underneath the ice and little caves inside all right well cool <laughs> no that sounds like fun no it's, it is pretty cool to get out in the ice and yeah. it's it's actually fairly heavy off here and and there's a there's actually some multi-year ice out there as well as a lot of pretty heavy first year ice there isn't, hasn't been that much multi-year ice around lately. I mean, we had a huge chunk of it come up to Barrow, actually, while I was over here. But friends were posting it on Facebook, and it was the kind of thing that we hadn't seen for a few years. Yeah, the natives here say they haven't seen the ice here along the shore the way it is in over 15 years or yeah. longer. That's, yeah. that's I'm, lo I'm looking forward to seeing the satellite imagery for the ice pack this year. It's been rather depressing the last several years, seeing the diminishing ice caps. Yeah, you know, but there have been other big chunks that have broken off. I mean, goodness gracious, in the 60s there were huge things, ice islands. I mean, we and the, the, the Soviet Union, as it was then, had entire bases out there. I mean, we had ice X and whatnot, but we had ice islands that lasted for three or four years. With runways and the whole nine yards. Yeah. Camps wow. built, concert huts, runways, mess halls, you name it. The whole, it was just a whole base floating around on a piece of ice with bulldozers. So interesting. I think we need to Google some of this <laughs> stuff and just learn more about it. T3 but, or Fletcher's T3. Ice Island. Yeah? yeah. We'll definitely look, look that one up. It is getting very late for these ladies and they have to get up really early in the morning. So with the fog, yes. and hopefully I won't be stranded tomorrow. Hopefully I'll be on a plane back to Fairbanks, but we will see how that goes. Vanessa, thank you for joining us, as well as you, Anne. It was so, it was fabulous listening to your stories. Wow, this was so much fun. Well, thank you, Anne, and thank you, Vanessa. And if you would like to learn more about Anne's research and her findings, she has a blog, Out of Ice and Time, and you can get her link off of my website, yourpositiveimprint.com. 
While you're there, please sign up for email updates from me. Music by Chris Knoll. Well, you can follow me on Facebook as well as Instagram, Your Positive Imprint, and Twitter at What's Your PI. And from your favorite podcast platform, please hit that subscribe button and subscribe to this podcast, Your Positive Imprint. What's Your PI? Subscribe now.